Our scripture is from the second chapter of Matthew, which in our biblical tradition is one of the two what we call biblical birth narratives in the New Testament. The other, of course, is in the second chapter of Luke, and we'll do a little bit of comparison and contrast next week in part two of this series. For this week, though, from the second chapter of Matthew, we've got some very important characters that emerge for us. The one we focus on today is a part of this sermon title, Herod, also known as Herod the Great. Now, he's mentioned just sort of in a what appears to be a cursory fashion in the time of Herod. And then we move right into hearing about the wise men and the birth. And we skim across the fact that this was a very important introduction because it indicates the power and importance of this person by the name of Herod, also known as Herod the Great. The way people dated things, they didn't have 1963 or 2018 as reference points for the way things occurred. The way they dated things in those days, the time of Jesus, the time of Paul, was by referring to it as the Gospel of Matthew does in the second chapter. During the time of Herod, the king. Why this is important for us today is it indicates the importance of this person known as Herod. We're going to talk a little bit about him today, the dynamics surrounding Jesus' birth, the comparison and contrast between these two individuals, and the role that Herod actually plays in the second chapter of Matthew. We try to capture this from time to time. Uh, Joss did such a good job on our global missions uh, debriefing after that global missions offering video, and the, the support that we offer to people in different places around the world, and and the reference to Bali, and the focus on the arts, and acting out the sacred. Well, we do that in our Christian tradition, too. We did that where I was growing up on Signal Mountain, and the Signal Mountain Baptist Church. We had a, a Christmas pageant every year. My mother was behind the production of this Christmas pageant, and one element of the Christmas pageant this particular year was on Herod the Great. Andrew Robinson, my mother, had designated to play this great king. And she put Andrew Robinson and his mother in charge of developing his own outfit that would be sort of kingly. And so the night of the pageant, Andrew Robinson shows up with a bathrobe and combat boots and a Burger King crown on his head. Uh, He had a chair, a metal folding chair, as his throne, and so... When it came time for him to be on stage, our prop guys, Red Roberts, came up and put the throne on the platform, and King Herod marches in with his combat boots and bathrobe. Bruce Rogers was the lead wise man and couldn't remember his lines, so my mother had to tape uh, his lines across the staff. Even though he was a wise man, he had to use a shepherd's staff so he could remember his lines. And so he approaches King Herod sitting on his folding metal chair in his bathrobe and combat boots and says, a new king has been born here now. We thought you'd like to know. And now these gifts we happily bring for our respects to show. 
And then Andrew Robinson, King Herod, responds with these words that my mother had put also on a little card for him to remember. Well, when you go find him, search for him detergently. She had written urgently, but child and urgently were together, and he pronounced it detergently. And when you find him, come tell me too, so that I can then go worship him. The wise men walk away, and the spotlight goes off, but not soon enough, because Herod gets up, and when he had sat down on his metal chair, his bathrobe somehow got folded into the back part of the metal chair. So when he stood up, his bathrobe ripped off, <laughs> revealing a t-shirt that said, come to the mountains of bush beer. <laughs> and then he walked off, dragging his metal chair to the dressing room. If only the real Herod had been that dumb. We will find out next week that the second part of the second chapter of Matthew is frightening. In fact, it's terrifying. Because of the response that Herod has to the news that a new king has been a part of this experience in Judea. Herod was very clever. He was also extraordinarily cruel. And so what occurs in this second chapter has both a terrifying foreground, but a fascinating background. The fascinating background involves Herod's paranoia, the competition that he was feeling, especially with one individual who happened to be one of the most famous women ever to live. Now, it so happens that there were two kingdoms side by side in the unfolding Roman Empire, uh, some of you see on the screen now a very famous person. Who is this? Okay, some of you got it right. Yes, it is Elizabeth Taylor, but she's playing somebody. So who is Elizabeth Taylor in this photograph? Okay, Cleopatra. She was the final and in some ways most important pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. Many people don't realize the fact that she was, in fact, an amazing woman. We don't know this as much today because the biographies that have been written of her have been mostly written by men who were extraordinarily jealous, angry, and in deep competition with her, like Herod. In fact, as you can see from the screen, she was fluent, not in one or two or three languages, but in nine different languages. She never needed a translator. In fact, when she developed her relationship with Julius Caesar, she ended up actually moving to Rome for a while. One of the nine languages, or, or the nine languages that she spoke did not include Latin. So later in her life, when she moved to Rome, she learned Latin as kind of a sideline so she could interact with and in fact compete with a famous fellow by the name of Cicero. Cleopatra was brilliant. She was powerful, one of the wealthiest women in history, and a tremendously influential power in the eastern part of what would become the Roman Empire. 
When Caesar Augustus, or when, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, she fled back to her capital city of Alexandria and there began a relationship with another fellow by the name of, not Richard Burton, but <laughs> Mark Antony. What's fascinating about this, while all this was going on, there was this other fellow in this little area known as Judea who was trying to consolidate his power. He was desperate to try to expand his influence. The problem was Cleopatra was so influential, so powerful, and so clever, and so smart that he was making no headway at all. They had several face-to-face meetings, we understand, from historical records, and we know that they didn't go well from Herod's standpoint because he was consistently made to feel like a country bumpkin because she could speak fluent Hebrew and Aramaic. And he struggled in Greek and Latin, and so she communicated with him in his language on his territory, and it made him furious. As their relationship went back and forth and competition increased, she actually ended up controlling some of the date farms that were along the Dead Sea that technically should have been Herod's area. But she was more influential than he. As you can see from the map, oh, we just lost our map. (laughs) Well, okay. (laughs) As you can see from the map that will be coming up here in just a moment, the, the influence that Cleopatra had and the competition that Herod and Cleopatra experienced made Herod very mad. And so the... Okay, let's see. Where, where are we now? <laughs> okay. Uh, Herod is messing with us again. All right. So the, the map... All right. So here we go. All right. So this is Herod's area of Judea. Cleopatra was controlling all this area and all this area. So she was extraordinarily influential, and she had formed a coalition and a relationship with Mark Antony. So the Roman Empire had sort of split at this point, and Mark Antony was representing hundreds of thousands of Roman legions that were all deployed in this part of the world. So she was very influential, uh, making these coalitions, this relationship with Mark Antony. Well, most of you remember from the movie Cleopatra or from your reading that things didn't end well for Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Herod actually had established a relationship with Mark Antony, but when things went south for the two of them, he quickly transferred his allegiance to another fellow by the name of Octavian. Octavian ended up becoming known as Caesar Augustus. And as a result of this relationship, Herod now became extraordinarily powerful because Cleopatra and Mark Antony in their their relationship, they end up committing suicide. This sort of collapses, and Rome absorbs this incredible power of Egypt and all the lands that Mark Antony and Cleopatra had been controlling. So Herod now is set free to begin to develop an amazing kingdom of his own. 37 BC is about when Herod started to consolidate his power. Along about 19 BC, Herod really begins to come into his own in the sense that now he starts building projects that the Mediterranean world began to be extraordinarily impressed with. This whole list of building projects includes 
palaces and theaters that impressed people, but also there was some manipulation that was taking place, especially in relation to what's known as the Second Temple. Now, the Second Temple is known simply in the New Testament as the Temple. It's the same Temple that Jesus and Paul and Peter and all the disciples would visit many times during their lifetimes. Early Christians would make journeys to the Second Temple. Herod was responsible for building this amazing construction. You can still see it when you go to Jerusalem today, the remnants of what Herod had built in this incredible retaining wall that held the temple. Today, the, the Alaska Mosque and the, the uh, Dome of the Rock are on top of what had been this temple. Today, it's called the Temple Mount. And it's also still today a very tense place where Christians, Muslims, and Jews all see this as sacred ground. Well, Herod exploited this in the sense of building this remarkable temple complex that was very impressive. In fact, there were some who in that day thought it should be included in one of the seven wonders of the world. It was so beautiful, so vast, and so exquisite. The disciples, in fact, make a commentary to Jesus at one point when they're on the the Mount of Olives, and they look out over this temple complex that Herod had built, and they exclaim, look at the beautiful stones and the way the sun shines off the gold. Herod made all this partly to impress people, but also to manipulate folks. He was very clever in his ability to stay in power. He started in 37 B.C. He died in 4 B.C. He ruled for 33 years. During his reign, he did some messy stuff. So from a power standpoint, he was very, very important, very influential. In a personal way, he had some issues going on that leak into our New Testament in ways that are not explicit, but we'll talk this morning just a little bit about some influence he had. First of all, he had ten wives, which makes your life very complicated to start out with. But one of his wives was his favorite. Her name was Miriam. This is the Hebrew pronunciation. Miriam was his favorite wife by far. He had two sons by Miriam. The problem with Herod's ability to stay in power was it was this balancing act of impressing people and terrifying people. When he began to suspect that you might not be loyal to him, he took his wrath out on you. And in the case of Miriam, his favorite wife, he began to suspect that something was not right. Maybe she wasn't as loyal to him as he was to her. So he had her and her mother and both of his sons by her executed. There was this ripple that was sent through Jewish society because Miriam not only was Herod's favorite wife, she was extraordinarily popular among regular Jewish people, especially Jewish people in Galilee. And when this happened around 19 or 18 or 17 B.C., the people in Galilee were so incensed and so upset, they began to resist in the only way they knew how, 
they started naming their daughters Miriam. That's the Hebrew pronunciation. But the English pronunciation is Mary. Jesus' mother and Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany and a number of other Marys in the New Testament likely were born during this little window of time where families were standing up and saying, we will not stand for this. And they named their daughters Mary. This is the time and the place and the dynamic that Jesus was born into. From a little girl who grew into a young woman whose very name talked about standing for what is right, standing up for the traditions not of power and prestige and great building projects, but the importance of God's word and moving forward in the tradition of the Hebrew people as God's chosen folks for all the world to be blessed. The story of Jesus emerges out of this quest to not just have power, but remain in power. And when Herod discovers from these wise men who have visited from the east, that we'll talk more about next week, he begins to do horrible stuff, including a parallel to what Pharaoh had done with the Hebrew people in Egypt in trying to kill all the baby boys under the age of two. Herod embarks on this terror campaign, and so this young family of Mary and Joseph and Jesus as an infant have to flee for their lives. Today we call them refugees. So the first identity that Jesus has as a baby is someone who is trying to escape the trauma of ethnic cleansing and war. It is an amazing juxtaposition of a man named Herod the Great who was known throughout that part of the world as doing incredible things, building amazing buildings and cities and keeping power in terrifying ways. And this little baby, born to an incredibly poor couple, running for their lives with just what they had on their backs. Harold Eddins was the name of a man that was one of my heroes at Providence Baptist Church. As a 78-year-old man, Harold became a chaperone for my son's mission trip, uh, the youth mission trip that went to South Dakota, to the Lakota uh, Indian tribe right outside of Pierre, South Dakota. Harold was 78 at the time. This was 2007. And our youth group was assigned to various places around this village within the Dakota Lakota Nation. And Harold and his team had been assigned to a house where a man by the name of Gary lived. Gary was one of the elders in the Lakota tribe, and he had not asked for help in his house. Some of the other Lakota leaders had seen the fact that Gary was living without functioning plumbing. Uh, there were a number of insulation issues, and during cold weather, Gary's home would, would be terribly cold. And so these other Lakota leaders had volunteered Gary's home as a work project for one of our teams. Harold Eddins was in charge of this team and went to Gary's home and discovered that Gary 
was incensed that a bunch of white people were trying to help him out as a Native American Lakota leader. He was very resistant, frustrated, angry. The first couple of days that Harold and this team tried to help, uh, he was clearly, through his body language, uh, very resistant to any, any kind of assistance. But Harold has a winsome way. He's a guy who comes from a background, a little town in North Carolina known as Hamlet. He didn't have a lot of formal education, but he was incredibly gifted with being able to do things with his hands. And he also had this winsome spirit, and most of all, he was a dedicated, devoted follower of Jesus. And everything that he did in his life, he really sort of chalked up to living out his faith. And so he saw it as his mission this week to just make Gary more comfortable with him as a guy coming from Charlotte, North Carolina, to try to help. Well, by about day three, Gary began to warm up to Harold and those that were working on this work team. By day five, they had redone all the plumbing in the house. The toilets, the sink, the shower all worked with not just water, but hot and cold water that we found later Gary had not had in about seven years. They redid the insulation, repainted the outside, cleared away some stuff, so that by day five, Gary actually was working with our group, and he and Harold had become buddies. By the time day six was ending and the group was leaving, Gary actually got pretty emotional in telling people goodbye. And the next week, we ended up getting a letter that was read in both worship services in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. It was a letter from Gary thanking our church and especially thanking his new brother, Harold Eddins, for the work that he had done and the friendship that they had forged. What's fascinating about this passage in the second chapter of Matthew is that when Herod dies in 4 BC, he had become aware that not only would people not grieve for his death, but they would be happy that he was gone. So he decreed to his soldiers on his death, they were to gather all the inhabitants around Bethlehem and the surrounding area into a stadium, and they were to be slaughtered so that at least there would be grief and tears when he died. Thankfully, the soldiers he gave the decree to did not obey. No one followed Herod after he died. Millions and millions and millions have followed Jesus like Harold Eddins, doing beautiful things in faraway places for people they've never met, and the only explanation is there's something more going on here, a deeper and wider connection that only God can make happen. You and I have the great privilege of continuing to live out that calling of following this refugee who came back to change the world. This morning we have the opportunity to participate in the supper that he led with his first disciples, where he took bread and wine, and he broke the bread and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. 
so that you can be strengthened and reminded of my presence in your life and our mission together. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he raised it before the disciples on that last evening before his death. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood that will be shed for you. This also, take, remember, as long as you share it, I am with you, always. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask your blessing on this meal that we're about to share. For the power that you still allow to live through each of us, for the gift, the opportunity, the mission, the ministry of following Jesus, of doing extraordinary things, we give thanks. And we pray this day that through the blessing of this bread and this cup, that you will also bless us so that we might be strong, fortified blessings of all that we come in contact with this week. We pray this with thankful hearts and in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.